0: Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. And this is Generation Jihad, the podcast where we cover all things related to what used to be known as the global war on terror and what we now call the long war. Today, we have a a special guest, our favorite guest, and probably our most frequented guest. That's Ambassador Edmund Fitton Brown. Edmund is a member of the Counter-Extremism Projects Advisory Board. He previously served as the United Kingdom's ambassador to Yemen, and later as the coordinator of the United Nations Security Council's Analytical Support and Sanctions Monitoring Team. And today, we are going to discuss the latest report by the monitoring team. Edmund, welcome back to Generation Jihad. Always a pleasure to have you on.
1: Thanks, Bill. Great to be here.
0: Uh, yeah, it's great to have you. Uh, another report's issued. Um, the last time you were on, I guess that was, what, early, mid-June? We talked about the the, the monitoring team's report on Afghanistan, the Taliban, and terrorist groups operating there. That was a, a fascinating and, I think, a very uh, enlightening report. A lot of new information, al-Qaeda camps, al-Qaeda leaders serving in the Taliban's government. Um, this current report uh, covers al-Qaeda and the Islamic State globally it will touch on a little bit on afghanistan we'll gloss over that because i don't think there's anything that much that's changed between that last report and and current um but uh we'll and there's a lot in this report i highly recommend everyone read read it um it's not very long uh, what about 20 pages or so give or take um and a lot of detail on what's going on in the global jihad we're going to highlight some of the sections we believe are the most significant Um, But again, there's a lot we're going to leave on the cutting floor today. So, you know, again, give it a give it a read. So first at the the higher level, I think this is a really good I'm going to quote from the report as I like to do. I think this is a really good summation of the situation in the global jihad. This is something that we've described here at Generation Jihad as the ebb and flow of the jihad. You know, sometimes in some regions, they're up. Some regions, they're down. But, you know, these groups are resilient. Um, And I think we believe that that word is used in the quote that I'm going to going to give you here in a second. And they they they're thinking in terms of decades and generations, while we here in the West tend to think in terms of election cycles. So here here goes. Here's that quote I was talking about. The threat of terrorism remains high in conflict zones and relatively low elsewhere. The situation is dynamic. And while the threat is suppressed in some conflict zones, The resilience of terrorist groups means that there is risk of resurgence in certain circumstances. Um, And also, so this report um, uh, highlights in in that same section, highlights two key threats, Um, the train, not the training camps in Syria, but the camps where there where tens of thousands of terrorists and their family members are being held in, in Northern Syria. And then it also highlights uh, Sections uh, uh, the, or the fighting uh, and the, the the worsening situation in the Democratic Republic of Congo and, and in the Sahel region and in, in general. Edmund, uh, any thoughts on on that? What I think is a very interesting quote and what it and some yeah, of the highlights of I, that report.
1: I agree, Bill. It's a good quote and um, and and it makes that key point about the threat being currently suppressed in non-conflict zones. Um, but the constant risk of resurgence, the fact that it is a dynamic picture with interplay between the conflict zones and neighbouring countries and the non-conflict zones. Um, in other words, we mustn't relax. Uh, we must maintain counter-terrorism pressure, and we must maintain our forward defence. Uh, there cannot there can be no question of bringing the troops home. However attractive that idea is politically, um, the, the mention of the camps in Syria it's part of the wider instability in that ISIL core area in Syria and Iraq. And that, that, those to me are a major concern. Um, and then again, Africa uh, remains very, very troubling, as you say. Um, and Afghanistan, as you say, we've, we've already covered that in detail in our last uh, podcast, but we'd be quite wrong not to mention that that is a third, uh, very troubling arena.
0: Yeah. And, you know, and, you made a really excellent point, you know one of my biggest concerns, and we hear this with the argument with Afghanistan. Well, we left Afghanistan. it'll be two years at the end of August, and there hasn't a terrorist attack hasn't emanated from there uh, against the West and you know it's that that type of thinking is what really worries me. That's the type of thinking that led to nine eleven um you know, with a threat existed in Afghanistan. Uh, I think Western leaders were very aware of it the Taliban told us, you know, that we could contain Al Qaeda all the way up until it wasn't contained. And we got 9-11 and we got, you know, we, we had several attacks that led up to that as well. Right. We had that were sort of pushed aside as being local. You had the Kenyan Tanzania, you had the USS Cole, and then some other smaller, you know, those are the two big ones that stick out. And, you know, the idea, and this gets back to what I was saying earlier, Edmund, about the, you know, decades and generations that Al Qaeda's in my estimation is willing to wait 2 years or 5 years or a decade um while it reestablishes allows the Taliban to reestablish control while it reorganizes its leadership and and has its safe haven um you know, when it decides to turn its guns back in, on the on the US and, you know, that's this is just the terrorist attacks. We also have to be concerned about those those insurgencies being run by those groups. That's the other part of the equation that gets mixed up. This is why the Sahel and Kong, the Congo and um, even Yemen and, and you know Somalia and other countries, right, where where jihadist Pakistan jihadist insurgencies are raging. It's because it's, ter- you know, the terrorist threat isn't just an attack. A pinpoint attack here or, or a large casualty attack there it's these insurgencies that are also occurring and that have to be looked at they go hand in hand
1: yeah completely agree bill and i mean uh, i share your um, concerns about al-qaeda i've always uh, wanted to maintain people's focus on al-qaeda as well as ISIL. ISIL excited people because of how flashy it was how how violent it was how brutal it was and they, they got a little bit bored of Al-Qaeda. But Al-Qaeda's strategic patience has been borne out. Uh, from their strategic point of view, they had a huge success with the Taliban taking over in Afghanistan. And they look like they're developing successes in the arenas where they're at, active in Africa as well. And uh, if you think about those insurgencies that you refer to, can we think of a single one that has been resolved peacefully and returned to stability? I can't, but I can think of a lot that are getting worse.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point on the insurgencies. And you you nailed it with the Islamic State. You know, I always say it's the shiny object in the room. Um, it got everyone's attention, and rightfully so. I mean, look, it, it, what it achieved in Iraq and Syria was significant, and then its propaganda and the the, the wanton, you know, execution, public executions that were put online, um, you know, i it, I I probably could be accused of having an Al-Qaeda bias um, because of the strategic patience certainly concerns me far more than a flash in the pan. But I see a little bit more, uh, the Islamic State seems to be acting a little bit more strategically, starting to figure out it's part of the game. There's certainly differences, again, with leadership styles and and organizational styles between the two groups. But the Islamic State, you know, it didn't, you know, burn out. It wasn't a shooting star. I mean, we're talking, we're almost at a decade to the formation of the Islamic State now. It's here to stay. It has its resilience just as Al Qaeda has its resilience. And and um, you know, as we take our, our focus off, uh stop opining about all of this and get to the meat of the report. But I think you know, this this context is important to, you know, to understand why what we're gonna talk about next. Um, you know, a bit, you know, yeah, the both groups they're they're again, I go back to that resilience the, the things like deep bench, which we'll get into, we see that in in the reporting of a killing of an Islamic State leader. Um, but let's let's go ahead and take a look at the um the the core of what's called the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria or ISIL, Islamic State, Iraq and the Levant, depending on your preference. I just always go with ISIS because probably because I remember, uh, I don't know, I think see, there was some type of cartoon in the 70s that had a Isis in it, and that always sticks in my head. But here we go. This is what the UN report uh, says about the Islamic State. It's, quote, I'm going to quote from the report, uh, its core in Iraq and Syria remains under pressure, particularly the the leadership, Uh, end quote. And then the report highlights the killing of Ali Jassim Salam al-Jabouri. Um, and this is how the, the I'm going to quote it again. This is how they describe him as quote uh, um, uh, the member member states uh, describe him as a signi- his death as a significant blow to the group, describing as its shadow leader. End quote. Edmund, tell us more about al Jabouri, what's his importance to the Islamic State, and what his role was within the organization. Because I find this to be fascinating, and looking forward to to getting your description of this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so this is definitely one of the highlights of the report, the mention of Jabouri's uh, killing in February. Um, so he's also uh, known as Abu Sara al-Iraqi, um, and um, I've also seen him referred to as Abd al muhajar al um, And he was the uh, emir or the head of the General Directorate of Provinces uh, in ISIL. Now, I'm pr- very proud of the work that we did with the monitoring team and the monitoring team continues to do um, on the general directorate of provinces because this is a uh, feature of ISIL that is not widely understood. But we started to map out the, the way that ISIL had um, structured itself in order to future-proof um, its jihad Um, against the military defeat that they were facing in Iraq and Syria. And this goes back to what you were saying about them having learned some lessons in terms of strategic patience, because they laid down a blueprint um, in those years, 2017 to 2019, as they were getting uh, going, as they were sort of facing their military defeat in their core area. Um, And in that blueprint with the regional networks uh, where, uh, the remote provinces, as they used to be called, the uh, the outlying uh, affiliates of ISIL, support each other and keep each other going, regardless of what misfortunes might befall the leadership uh, in Iraq and Syria. And the GDP General Directorate of Provinces um, has become absolutely crucial to ISIL's functioning uh, globally, and uh, it's. It's both involved in uh, the channeling of uh, provision of expertise, uh, instruction, appointments, uh, finance, um, and um, going the other way from the provinces to the centre. Um, propaganda, you know, footage of operations that are being carried out by the provinces, especially the very active ones in places like um, uh, the Sahel and in the Lake Chad Basin, DRC. Um, So we we did a lot of work on this, and uh, we were the first people to sort of put this into the public domain. Now, I see, I want to reference at this point, that the Combating Terrorism Centre at West Point um, has this uh, Sentinel magazine, which I I regard as essential reading uh, on these subjects, and um, in their latest uh, edition, um, Tora Hamming has, uh, has done some work on leaked, J- leaked jihadi documents. And from that, fleshing out a picture of the GDP and its functions. And also there's a reference in there to the, to the death of, um, of, uh, uh, of uh, Abu Sara in February. Um, I think the conclusion that we have reached um, is that Abu Sara had become the most powerful figure in ISIL because that role as head of the GDP. Even their proposed um, redevelopment of of an external threat capability, that was also being channeled through the regional networks. The whole idea was that you could have something like ISIL in Afghanistan or ISIL in um, in, uh, Somalia, Um, and that that could, if it became strong enough and confident enough, to do it, it could actually get directly involved in inspiring or uh, encouraging or even facilitating attacks outside that arena. So the, the GDP and the, and, the, and the regional networks have become crucial to every aspect of ISIL. And what's interesting about this monitoring team report is the reference to, to uh, Abu Sara or al-Jabouri um, as, uh, as its shadow leader. And that that carries us into um, the question of, you know, maybe this helps to explain why the succession of killing of actual heads of ISIL didn't seem to have much of an impact on the direction of the group. They seemed always to be able to put up a new leader and to continue roughly as before. And maybe it was Abu Sara who was providing that sort of underlying stability, sort of uh, directing the group from just below the level of the the leader. Um, And of course, it remains to be seen, and the report makes this point, it remains to be seen how much of an impact his death then will have on the functioning of the group.
0: Yeah, the report goes, um, it it names four individuals who they identify as a potential successor. I think this is what the State Department used to call for al-Qaeda, it's deep bench. Um, The fact that we have four individuals that aren't known how many i wonder how many are unknown that could fill his shoes but it sounds to me like uh this is he almost sounds the the head of the general directorate of the provinces almost sounds like the role of of what al-qaeda calls its general manager um is that is that about right i mean he's the one who organizes the staff for for the emir but also communicates with the prop with the what Al-Qaeda calls its branch actually Al-Qaeda calls its theaters, what we call its branches or its affiliates, um, appointments, identifies leadership, deals with issues like training and finance. So, but would, would you, would you agree or disagree?
1: I, mean, I think in principle, yes. My, my sense is that Abu Sahr had become even more than that. that more powerful. In some ways he was really the leader of the group.
0: Sure. Sure. Yeah. I know within Al-Qaeda, the general manager typically executes, you know, significant role, but yes. Okay. That's, um, Let's uh, we'll move on next to the next part of the report. It, the, the, there is a claim in there, this has been out there. I saw it in the Turkish press when it came out that the uh, the self uh, described uh, caliph or the emir of the Islamic State, his name is Abu al Hussein, al Husseini, al Qureshi. Um, supposed Turkish uh, intelligence, I believe it was, claimed that they killed him. We haven't had any reporting from the Islamic State, we haven't had any other country or intelligence service come out and say. That he's dead. Uh, first, tell us a little bit about the, the latest Qureshi. What do we know about him? And what do you think about the validity of the reports of his death?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting one, Bill. So, Abu al Hussein um, has been the, the leader of ISIL since um, October last year. Um, and then, you know, the suggestion was that he might have been killed in April. If that were the case, he would only have survived for six months in the role. Now, that's not. Hard to believe because his predecessor al Hassan only survived eight months in the role. He was the Emir from February until October 2022, um, and then before that, Abu Ibrahim, who was there, was the previous uh, Emir, uh, lasted very much longer. He was he was Emir for two and a half years from October nine uh, 2019 until February 2022. So there's been an accelerating attrition of these guys, and I think what that reflects, although, you know, it hasn't always been uh, U.S. operations that have taken out these leaders, um, but I think it reflects the intensity of CT pressure in the area where these guys have been trying to reside. It started to feel as if they just can't catch a break. Someone would be killed. And then, you know, a month later, six weeks later, another senior would be killed. And, you know, before you knew it, the the new emir would have been killed as well. So um, those are the reasons for thinking it wouldn't be a great surprise if Abu al-Hussein had only lasted six months. But is he dead? So uh, this was a case. So so President Erdogan of Turkey uh, is somebody who likes to announce these things. Uh, He I think it was President Erdogan himself who actually uh, indicated that uh, that Abu al-Hussein had been killed. but. He also had previously um, announced, I think, in September 2022, the detention of Bashar al-Sumayday. Now, I think Bashar al-Sumayday was detained, but Turkey, I think, was happy to suggest that he was the leader of ISIL. And in fact, he wasn't. Uh, He was not uh, Abu al-Hassan. And of course, it was just a month later that Abu al-Hassan was, in fact, killed. So. It's, this is interesting. I mean, obviously, Turkey has very good information, but Turkey's also quite capable of um, of saying, "Well, you know, we can make an announcement, and that's going to actually unsettle the group. You know, it causes the group difficulty. They have these very elaborate procedures to welcome a new caliph. Um, you know, all of these pledges of allegiance televised, and if you then say that the guy's dead, that causes them problem. You know, do they deny it or uh, and if you know if they don't deny it, then their supporters start to get nervous and worried that the person they've just pledged allegiance to is in fact dead. Um, so uh, there might be a little bit of you know sort of calculated uh, disruption here being practiced by Turkey. I don't know uh, what lies behind it exactly, um, but you know, the reading between the lines of the monitoring team report, they will always be tactful to avoid giving offence to a member state. So they're never, going to, they're never going to say we think this is wrong, but they sound doubtful to me in the, in the way that they've drafted the report. They mention the lack of confirmation from other member states that Abu al-Hussein uh, has been killed. And they also mention that there was some suggestion, I think also in the Turkish information, that Abu al-Hussein might have had a Syrian identity and in fact, um, I don't think we believe that the leader of ISIL, at least for the foreseeable future, will be anything other than an Iraqi. Um, so bear in mind, the truth is that we we still don't even know what Abu al Hussein's true identity is. We don't know, you know, because in, in some in previous cases, we've established the civil identity. Um, because ISIL identifies their leaders by, um, by sort of nom de guerre. You know, they have, they have Abu al-Hussein is a father of Hussein. It's not a, it's not something you would have on your driving license. Um, but, you know, the monitoring team has assiduously got to the civil identities of these leaders, what they would have on their driving license, what they would have in their passport. And, we just haven't got to that with without saying we don't know who he is. We don't know the name of his parents. We don't know where he was born or anything of that kind. So with all of that sort of said, I, I, I have to say that we can't possibly draw the conclusion that he's dead. He might be, but we don't know.
0: Yeah, I concur. And that's a great point you make, Edmund, about the constraints that the te- the monitoring team is under and... You know how they ha- how they have to process and handle this information. They certainly don't want to just dis- insult any of the countries providing the information. Um, you know there is another thing here uh, as well. Uh, the timing of that was right before the election, and certainly Erdogan may have viewed that as being a potential boost to him. Uh, you know, making an assumption that's certainly a possibility. But you know we'll we'll move on from that one. And um, so. The next thing the report notes, uh, it says that the, I'll, I'll again, I'll quote from it, quote, leadership attrition led the Islamic State Corps to adapt a flat command and control structure, end quote. Edmund, what does the team mean exactly by a flat command and control structure?
1: Yeah, I, so I think this is a really important point that they're making and and, and around the same point in the report. I think they leave room for doubt as to whether maybe this leadership attrition has gone to the point where it's actually starting to damage ISIL's operational effectiveness. Now, member states have always disagreed about this. Um, and I can remember sitting with member states that I regarded as roughly equally well informed. And one would say, no, there's always going to be a new leader. It's never going to be a problem. They just pop up like mushrooms. Decapitation doesn't work and there will never be um Uh, This will never actually really damage their operational effectiveness. And another equally well-informed member state saying, no, we think that their leadership resilience is almost destroyed and that they won't be able to bring on um, people of the capability of uh, a Baghdadi, you know, um, the the famous former caliph uh, Abu Bakr Baghdadi. And I I have to say that the, the acceleration of the killing in itself suggests that they're struggling with leadership because they're not able to bring someone on board and keep them safe. So that's a problem already for them. And if they can't keep them safe, then there's this issue, how do they communicate? And of course, they don't communicate at the moment. They're not able to um, actually issue um, the kind of messages that Baghdadi used to issue. And, you know, even... So 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 that, because the, the suggestion was that when Baghdadi did these video messages... Uh, That was possibly one of the ways that he got himself detected and killed. So I think there is a real sort of problem for ISIL in terms of leadership resilience. I've always leant towards that analysis, that this kind of pressure was gradually going to uh, damage their preferred model of leadership. And that, I think, is what's hinted at when they say a flat command and control structure. I think it means the dispersal of cells, even in the core area. I think it means people operating in small groups with minimal knowledge of one another, um, a reduction in hierarchical command structures so that you can't be unraveled so easily, so that if you get to somebody, it doesn't lead you to somebody else. A delegation of authority to localities in the way that authority has already been delegated to the regional networks. And I, I think what that might mean is an improvement in their operational security at the expense of their command, control, and communication, and I think that may mean that it makes them less operationally effective.
0: Yeah, I'm going to quickly comment on you know the decapitation slash assassination strategy. Um, I guess I fall in the middle middle there. I always say that the you know going after the leadership it's necessary but not sufficient if it's not done on a scale on, on a wide scale, not done in a timely fashion. So if we're killing enough of their leaders um, in a, you know, in a short period of time, then yes, I agree. A decapitation campaign will have a, a, an effect. And that may be what we're seeing here. That may be what the UN report is alluding to. So, you know, a lot of people, you know, I always, you know, hear, Oh, it just doesn't work. And it's like, it's not that it doesn't work. It's just it has to be applied in a manner that will have the desired effect, and I you know look, I tracked that uh, campaign to target al Qaeda's leadership in Pakistan um from what two thousand and five to about two thousand and seventeen and I just came away with the fact that al Qaeda's bench was deep enough, and we weren't killing them quick enough in order to cause the collapse of you know al Qaeda was still communicating with its branches still direct you know was it effective was it operating at 100 percent efficiency certainly not was it at 80 was it at 60 i don't i don't have the answer to that i don't know who does but i know that the group itself didn't collapse we didn't see you know branches falling apart even at the height you know with the problems with the islamic state right when the islamic state formed in iraq um, al-qaeda was communicating back and forth in order to resolve those issues and that was Right at the time when the, the drone campaign was right at its peak. So despite the pressure that al-Qaeda was under, um, I would also argue that the strikes were confined to a, a very narrow area. If I recall, actually, I know this for a fact, uh, 95% of those strikes were in North and South Waziristan. And the idea that al-Qaeda's leadership was confined to that was just absolutely absurd. Just look at where bin Laden was killed. Um, and other key leaders, we know we're operating outside of those areas, including in places like Iran. But I digress. Um, I just, you know, wanted to reinforce that, you know, I'm, I'm with you. It can work if it's done properly. And and that and I, hopefully that's what we're seeing here.
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe just two additional points um, on that, Bill, just again, to mention Abu Sarah and whether that's a, a decapitation of a different level of importance. So, uh, you know, given the importance of the GDP in the way that ISIL um functions globally, you know, unless he has a successor who's of a similar quality, um, maybe that's also going to be um, something that will, you know, sort of compound the loss of of actual heads as well. And then the other point is, you know, if you talk to counter-terrorists, particularly in the West, you'll find that they're always in two minds about what is the most unsettling threat to face. I'm pretty clear that the threat that we faced from ISIL um, before 2017 was much more serious than the one that we faced since 2017. When you had a fully functioning group, which was able to um, direct sophisticated international attacks with strategic impact, um, that was very, very troubling. And um, now what you'll find is that the same people who found that unsettling, they feel unsettled by the much more fragmentary picture. And I think that's what the team's driving at. It's a this flatter structure. It's it's going to be a more fragmented picture. Now, that doesn't mean that there won't be attacks. There will be. Um, mainly, they will be in conflict zones. But, you know, somebody is going to get radicalized online and they're going to talk to a friend of theirs in Afghanistan or a friend of theirs in Syria um, or in Somalia. And they're going to go out and hire a car and drive it into a bunch of people. And and that kind of completely unpredictable terrorism, even though it doesn't have the same strategic impact, it's very unsettling. And so one of the things I used to try to uh, get across in the monitoring team was that however unsettled we are by those kind of attacks, we have to recognize that to some degree that is what success looks like in counterterrorism.
0: Yeah that it it is a difficult one I you know the big thing that always concerns me is capacity and you know uh resilience capacity uh, obviously when they could take control of a state like you know Islamic state did in Iraq and Syria carved out a state there or the Taliban in Afghanistan now um but and you know on the decapitation I consider guys like Abu Sara or Al Qaeda's general manager, leaders of the branches or provinces, right? Obviously, branches Al Qaeda and provinces for Islamic State, um, key facilitators. You can't, you know, just killing the emir certainly isn't going to do it for these groups. They can, you know, I would argue, you know, guys like the, you know, the head of the GDP or the head of the uh, Al Qaeda's general ma- Al Qaeda's general manager. Those are probably more important leaders within the group because they're the guys that are getting stuff done. Um, you know, obviously the ideological and the overall direction provided by the top leadership of both the Al Qaeda and the Islamic State and its mere deputy Amir, um, very important. But you know, the guys that get stuff done, you got to take them out too because they're potential replacements. Um, Al Qaeda's current, you know, and, and another point on decapitation. You look at Al Qaeda's. I didn't mean to focus much time on here, but it's always a fascinating topic to me. You know, Al. Osama bin Laden, what twenty plus years before he was killed? I'm in Al Zawahiri, eleven years till he was killed, and now Al Qaeda's amir, we believe, is uh, Sayf al adel which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, he's what coming up on a year now. Um, yep, U.S. killed him. As a matter of fact, almost to to the day, uh, probably when this podcast actually published. Right now, it's uh, July 28th when we're recording. Um, he's been one year. I think that also talks of, you know, one of the things that the Islamic state constrained itself with was its leader being an Iraqi and basing themselves in Iraq slash Syria, um, versus Al Qaeda doesn't have those restraints. So it's allowed to seek better safe havens. Um, but, um, and it, you could comment on that or we could move on to the next, next topic, uh, uh only, up to you. Only,
1: only that I love the, uh, I love the way that you spotted the, uh, the one year marker and. You know, I wonder if we should do that LinkedIn They can congratulate Safe on his work anniversary. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, hopefully, like, you know, maybe they could time it by the time this is released. A uh, fun fact here, when Zawahiri was killed in, uh, yeah, right, I mean, right, almost a year to the date, I had actually released a podcast that where, and we talked about him still being alive. These things take time to produce, right, because there was re- several reports of him being dead. It was, you know, Treated by most by many uh, people in the counterterrorism field. Um, So, you know, (laughs) the timing of these things could be funny. Hopefully we're wrong and maybe maybe the U.S. or someone else will kill him in between the time that we discuss this and the podcast is released. That's that's my hope anyway. If I could get one wish for the week, I'll take it. So well let's uh let's uh, move on to the uh real quickly the last point on the islamic state um i'll again i'll quote from the report i like this quote it talks about the resiliency and then gets into estimates of strength which we've talked about in the past as being not necessarily you know the end all be all but we always believe uh, at least i do and i'm pretty sure you're in agreement with me edmund these are good starting points they're solid they're good you know the number could be doubled, you know, very unlikely to be lessened in my estimation, but that's certainly possible. But here's what this says about the Islamic state in Iraq and Syria. It says, and and I like this word, uh, I didn't cut this out. It says, you know, so it's saying, what it's saying is despite all the problems, and here we go, quote, never, nevertheless, ISIL is assessed to remain resilient, commanding between 5,000 to 7,000 members across the two countries, most of whom are fighters. The group is the, the group deliberately adopts a strategy to reduce attacks and use guerrilla tactics while reorganizing and recruiting and and quote. I just think that's a you know, this we're, we're at a down cycle here for the Islamic State. Can they get it back? I mean, I cut my teeth on Iraq in this business, you know, I'll, you know, by 2005, Al Qaeda in Iraq's on the upswing. By 2007, it controls large areas. Then the U.S. launches the surge. I was in Iraq for that and several embeds. They beat him back. By 2011, we kill a ten. Was it 2010? We killed the emir of uh, Abu. What was it? Uh, Abu Omar al Baghdadi and and his God, names are escaping me. But the and his uh, Al Qaeda uh, Abu Majer, I believe it was al Iraqi. Is that his name? It was the Al Qaeda representative. Uh, Someone will correct me on that, I'm sure. Um, And Al-Qaeda was at its low in Iraq was at its low point. Um, But yet within three years, it's back. We got the Al-Qaeda takes control of large areas that it morphs into the Islamic State because of the dispute. Now it's down. Can it be back? I mean, and I think that that's what the report is sort of holding out here, saying, you know, again, it gets back. And I love that the report uses that word resilient because it's a word, you know, Tom Jocelyn and I have used for the last decade. Um any any thoughts on that on on, on that portion of the report?
1: You you express it exactly right, Bill. It's a sort of a down cycle a little bit. Um but you know the report is really keen to emphasize that this is a hard won state of affairs and, and it can be lost again. So you know important to maintain this counterterrorism pressure. I think the one thing I, I, I want to add is is that I'm really glad in the report to see this emphasis on the core area, Iraq and Syria Um, especially Syria, Um, international focus often moves on to, you know, the next shiny thing and quite understandably international focus moved to Africa, moved to Afghanistan. Um, And those are really, really important points. And of course we're going to come to them, but you mustn't ever think that you've dealt with Syria. Um, And, um, you know, In my view, Syria remains central to the global Salafi jihadi threat. Um, There is no prospect of peace, stability, or reconstruction in Syria. The Sunni majority will never acquiesce again in Alawite rule. ISIL and Al-Qaeda, they know that, they understand it. Um, They have ungoverned space to exploit there. They have a natural constituency. And this carries across the poorest border to Iraq as well, with its own sectarian and internally displaced persons challenges. So, you know, Idlib Idlib as well in northwestern Syria is an extremist enclave. So despite setbacks, these Salafi jihadis, these Sunni extremist terrorists, they expect to win in Syria. And that's why they're never going to give up on Syria, no matter how many casualties they take in the interim.
0: Yeah, it's it's really fertile ground for for the jihadists. Look, I you know you you made an excellent point. I remember doing a uh, a debate with Peter Bergen. I want to say this was like 2011, and you know we were discussing is Al Qaeda done right? And obviously, Tom and I argued, no, they're not. I mean, you know, we made the ebb and flow argument, and we showed how you know there was still and and Peter. I remember says to me, he said Bill, you were in Iraq, you saw. The the surge and where Al Qaeda in Iraq is, and at this point in time, I was actually tracking the um, Al Qaeda's uh, resurgence or re, uh, you know rebuilding. And there was this video that came out in uh, from Anbar Province, and they did a drive run in um, in Haditha and Barwana, where they spent about two hundred or so uh, Al Qaeda fighters. They're all kitted up, driving stolen Humvees. And I saw this and I've been to both of those places and they were, you know, Al Qaeda was defeated there without a doubt in 2007 when I was there, actually 2005 when I was there, they were defeated. Um, and I, I used this and said, look, Peter, I'm, you know, what? what you're looking at today isn't, you know, this isn't static. These groups just don't quit just because we want to turn away from them. And I highlighted that video and I remember that video in particular there was other ones as well and other information that was tracking But I remember saying to several people like this is not good, because the U.S. withdrew that year. I'm like, this is not going, you know, this is really bad. The capacity they're building here and where they did this attack, we really need to have. And by the way, you know, everyone talks about the Islamic State's taking a Mosul, but where it first took control of areas in in Iraq was in Western Iraq in Anbar Province in you know Fallujah and 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 all those areas Ramadi all fell to the it was still Al Qaeda in Iraq when that happened, and so you know yeah you know, but your point uh, you, that's an excellent point and you know another thought came to my mind I mean what if this report was written in two thousand and one how short would would the areas being covered where there's insurgent jihadist insurgencies what would we have we would have well, maybe let's say two thousand and two right maybe some something in somalia possibly you know obviously afghanistan i'm not sure what pakistan would look like um you know something possibly algeria i have to my memory of the what jihad was doing back then and now look at all of the areas we can't even cover them today all in our podcast here. the un report again does a great job but you know what are your thoughts on that like that to me the report these reports that they keep expanding in their in their areas, to me, it just shows how these, you know, the jihad just continues to grow. It, it gains new ground. It's 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 a real failure um, that we've been a- unable to contain it.
1: Yeah. I mean, and and I think the, the other key point about this, Bill, is that we've got to be so careful not to allow focus to wander away from these groups because they're not done. And um, there has been a tendency, particularly in Western Europe, um, Slightly encouraged, I think, from elsewhere and on the globe, for range of reasons, um, to play up the uh, extreme right wing uh, or white supremacist, or there are various, various, there's various terminology for that sort of spectrum of extremists. Now, you know, th- those people are a problem, and uh, they are terrorists, and they certainly need to be uh, carefully monitored and countered. But um, where I really take issue with that tendency is where people have said that that is now the bigger threat as opposed to the Salafi jihadi threat. You do sometimes hear that it's completely wrong and it's an incredibly dangerous mistake to make um, because the reason that the Salafi jihadi threat on the streets of New York or Washington or London or Singapore um is currently suppressed it's hard work it's extremely effective counterterrorism measures it's a lot of resource that's gone into it but the underlying the underlying conditions that led to 9 that led to the isil caliphate those have not gone away they have not been fully addressed and as you said there are more of these conflict zones than there were before so this is the point what goes on in the conflict zone will not stay in the conflict zone we have to keep our defenses up and our forward defenses as well.
0: Yeah let me share you just a really quick tidbit on the the uh we'll call it the whatever the right wing extremist threat in last was it last year yeah it was 2022 april i believe i testified to congress to the house homeland security uh uh, I forget which subcommittee, and um, the topic was the threat of global um, terrorism. And I was a witness for the Republicans, so I'm in the, in the minority. And there's three Democrat witnesses. Everyone talked about the threat from the three other witnesses talked about the the threat from right wing extremists, particularly in the United States, and. I'm sitting here talking about Al-Qaeda's, resur- not resurgence, but Al-Qaeda's um, growing, you know, safe haven in Afghanistan. And several congressmen stopped me, well, not stopped me, but commented and said, I didn't realize we were here to talk about Afghanistan today. And after the third time, I I had to just, I just couldn't hold my tongue. And I said, you know, I, I've heard this a lot, you know, out today, but, you know, I, lest we forget, this is a. You're talking about domestic extremism here. I'm talking about the the global terrorism threat. You know, Afghanistan was the point of origin for 9-11. The Taliban's back in control. Afghanistan, you know, I had to lay out the case. I didn't get that again. But the whole whole committee uh, hearing, I just was flabbergasted and disgusted. It was, I, I wanted to say to them, am I in the right committee? You know, am I at the right hearing? Did I come in on the, the the, you know, the right winning extremism committee and somehow talk about the threat to global terrorism? So that here in the, United, I know you said Western Europe, but here in the United States, that's, they don't, you know, most people don't want to hear about this. They want to talk about domestic politics, domestic extremism, things of that nature. It's very unsettling. Um, I'm with you 100% on that. And, you know, Sorry, I went off on a tangent there, but this is this is part of the threat. This is the lack of attention that are being given to these areas. And um, it's very... Concerning. It is.
1: No, it is it is important to cover it. And I mean, you know, I've mentioned Western Europe and of course the United Kingdom is often in my mind. And uh, uh, it was interesting to see the Shawcross review recently of the PREVENT program in the United Kingdom. And, and you know, he reached the right... Con- Cross reached the right conclusion, which was that the, the UK had drifted too far away from prevent of the um, uh, Islamic extremist threat, and it found it easier and more palatable to do a disproportionate amount of work on the sort of extreme right wing or incel or you know the various uh, uh, various types of uh, uh, non Salafi jihadi threats, and that's now going to be corrected in the UK. They're going to they're going to they're going to sort of uh, insist on putting more emphasis back onto. The Salafi jihadi threat, and that is the right thing to do. One of the things that's coming up in the United Kingdom, and I think this is probably true uh, by extension in Western Europe. I don't, I don't think it applies particularly in North America. Um, but we are looking at increasing frequency of release of radicalized, uh, uh, extre- Islamic extremist prisoners, and there's going to be a lot of these people coming out. And uh, you know, if you if you don't use your resources wisely to monitor whether these people are still a problem and whether they're going to be starting to turbocharge, you know, extremist circles and generate new attacks, then sooner or later, that's going to come back and bite you as it already has done in the UK.
0: Yeah. And, you know, that's a great point you make about the releases because we are what we're 22 years after 9-11 now almost, we're almost there. Um, A lot of these convictions, a lot of these, Prison sentences are coming up. There's going to, there's least and, and I know the UK has problems of keeping, uh, not even being able to prosecute some well-known jihadists. That's a whole nother subject. I'd love to hear your opinion on another day, but uh, jihadist preachers, right? Who are, I mean, I read their statements. I see who they're involved with. And it's amazing to me that they are still. So yeah, lots of, lots of problems on that front. Um, probably a great conversation for another day. Let's uh, let's turn to uh, what the report talks about uh, Al-Qaeda al- al- what Al-Qaeda al- refers to as its general command. Um, nothing really groundbreaking here. A lot of this, again, we discussed in our last uh, podcast from June on Afghanistan. But um, it does note um, that Saif al-Adel, he's still thought to be in Iran. Um if this is true, and there's, we know there's other senior Al Qaeda leaders. They've been identified as being sheltering in Iran as well. Um, what are the implications of this for for Iran, for Al Qaeda, and for I mean, you know, if they're in Iran, I mean, the, I don't see a country that's going to be willing to conduct a strike there, other than an assassination, like we've seen. But these are really difficult to get to them. What, what are the implications of him remaining in Iran one year after succeeding Osama, or, or I'm sorry, I'm in al Zawahiri?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it's a really big deal, isn't it, Bill? And, and um, you know, I mean, even when Zawahiri was alive, you could have made a case for saying that the global leadership of al-Qaeda was in Iran, because it wasn't, as you say, it wasn't just Saif al it was Abdul Rahman al-Maghribi and a whole bunch of other um, al-Qaeda seniors, um, uh, basically sort of, you know, forming the most concentrated committee of al-Qaeda leadership anywhere in the world whereas Zawahiri was somewhat on the edges um, in Afghanistan. Um, and, then, and then Zawahiri was killed a year ago, as we said. So now Saif al is the leader and he's still in Iran and those guys with him are still in Iran. Um, so, you know, this is a really interesting phenomenon politically. Iran now hosts the leadership of al-Qaeda, including the leader. So that begs a number of questions. You know, one is, um, does Iran want him to stay or go? Uh, you know, and I think perhaps, perhaps it's too big a subject for us to get into the, the calculations that might go into that. A bargaining chip, insurance against al-Qaeda attacking Iran, uh, just a de- delight in in, um, in sponsoring any group that's going to uh, cause problems for Western, al- Western adversaries of Iran. Um, we don't know. Do they want him to stay or do they want him to go? And does he want to, to stay or to go? Um, where would he go? It would be fascinating to see where he would end up if he did leave Iran. Would he be welcome in Afghanistan or would that you know run the risk, you know after what happened to Zawahiri, of bringing down further embarrassment on the heads of the Taliban?
0: But on that um, point, Edmund, real quick, has the Taliban really paid a price for Zawari being in Afghanistan?
1: No, no, they haven't really, and and of course, I don't mean to suggest that they have, but it's,
0: uh, they were embarrassed, I think you know other, other than embarrassment, but that goes yeah. away. I mean, there's a short memory yeah. that exists out I, I, there. Everybody I, wants to talk with the Taliban so which is why I say
1: that there's no guarantee in fact that he would not be welcome in Afghanistan. He might be. They might say, yeah, this could embarrass us again, but it's worth it. So it's possible that he would be welcome in Afghanistan. I don't rule that out. Yeah. I, listen, a, and I
0: don't know the answer to that. I think there's, you know, there's a good equation yeah. here as you're talking about. I'm not saying he would go to Afghanistan. I'm just, my, my my point on that was, is like, I really don't think Afghanistan paid any price other than some discomfort from, you know, from that, you know, countries yeah. still want to talk with them. The U.S. State Department's going to meet with Taliban officials. If they haven't done so already and, you know, everybody wants to give them aid, it's just a matter of detail.
1: I yeah. I mean, no, I mean, you're right. I don't think I don't think the Taliban has paid a price for it. Um, and maybe it's not just a question about whether they would be afraid to host him, but also maybe whether he would be afraid to go there because ch- changing countries, moving, having a new base, the fact that his predecessor was killed there, you know, those those might all be things that would be in his mind. Um, and then um, you know, so uh, one of the interesting factors here is there is some tension and some public mudslinging going on between Iran and the Taliban right now about whether the Taliban you know uh, are hosting terrorists. You know, I think Iran has just accused the Taliban of you know sort of bringing in ISIL figures into Afghanistan, and something that something the Taliban has denied. So, uh, so that's that's interesting background noise to this. But of course, it's also true that there are very strong back channels that exist between the Haqqani network and Iranian intelligence, uh, reflecting their common hatred of the West. So you can bet that the Haqqanis and the Iranians are talking about SAFE and, you know, what's going on and how is this likely to develop over time. And it would be wonderful, wouldn't it, to know what they're saying to each other and, you know, what the conclusion eventually will be about where SAFE should be based. And then Slightly jumping the gun, because I know you're going to come to Yemen in a minute. But of course, there is this link that Saif has to Yemen through his son. And so I suppose he might possibly go to Yemen. That's another possibility. But one of the things that we need to bear in mind anyway, in all of this, is that Saif cannot be announced as the new al-Qaeda leader, because if they do that, al-Qaeda would embarrass the Taliban because it would contradict their, their narrative, which incredibly remains that they have no, they're not aware of any gentleman such as Ayman al-Zawahiri. They are not aware of him ever having resided at a Haqqani guest house in Kabul. They're not aware of any counter-terrorist operation in which said Mr. Zawahiri might have been killed at the end of July 2022. And so with the Taliban maintaining that ridiculous denial, uh, Al-Qaeda can't announced safe as the leader. They have to continue to get to carry on as if Zawahiri was still alive.
0: It's really weird. And I know we've discussed this in past podcasts, but they really are in a box on this one because they can't lie about him, how he dies, right? They want him to be a martyr, but they just can't announce it because of the embarrassment to the Taliban. Um, Re- really interesting dynamic um i also think that the al-qaeda learned from lie from the taliban about lying about the death of uh, uh mullah omar and you know the taliban playing basically playing weekend at bernie's with his corpse by issuing statements in his name and things like that and that was you know really almost caused the destruction of the taliban you know when people talk about oh the taliban being disunited that was the only time where i was saying hey there's a serious problem here and by the way the connie's played Particularly, Siraj and his father, Jalaluddin Haqqani, played a significant role in putting that band back together so well that they took control of the country six years later. Um, but hey, Edmund, that's a great. Let's jump into um, the UN reports claim that it's claiming that Saif that Adil's son is inside Yemen and playing a key role within the organization. Tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I find this is one of the most interesting points in the report, again. I as well. Is- this is news to me um, and possibly, of course, it enhances SAFE's control over AQAP media because AQAP, Al-Qaeda in the Raven Peninsula, has always been uh, really important from the point of view of supplying a lot of Al-Qaeda's propaganda. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I'm not sure how clearly we can read this in the propaganda, but it might be one of the things that is attractive to SAFE in having his son there in, uh, in Yemen. Um potentially it offers him a new base if he if he if he were if he were re- ever really strapped you know had to leave iran couldn't go to afghanistan maybe he could go to yemen as another option um and um and and then you know there's a q a p itself i think is an interesting uh, you know it's an interesting branch of al qaeda apart from the propaganda value um the propaganda role that it's always had of course it had that very important role as a um sort of aviation threat to international civil aviation because that was in the days of uh, Assyri, the uh, the master bomb technician who uh, who was in yemen but of course was eventually uh, found and and killed um by the united states um in yemen so there's something iconic about yemen for al qaeda still i think and um and so, you know, I think I can, I can see why SAFE considers it interesting. I think there are some oddities also about Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. It's really important from the Saudi point of view. You know, the Arabian Peninsula in the end is the most iconic location for these groups, even more than Syria, even more than Iraq. You know, if, 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 if they could ever threaten the stability of the Arabian Peninsula, that would be the absolute jackpot from their point of view. So it really, really matters to them. Um, AQAP was originally based in Saudi Arabia and a lot of, a lot of, a lot of its members are Saudis. Um, and it was sort of forced out of Saudi Arabia and, and into Yemen. And, and I think it's, you know, there's there's still factions within AQAP. Um, maybe Safe Sun is part of a plan from uh, safe to you know just to just to smooth over that and encourage AQAP to you know to function as efficiently and as consensually as possible. That might be part of it. You may remember that odd uh, unresolved issue from a previous monitoring team report about whether Khalid Batarfi, the leader of AQAP, might have at one point been detained and then released again by by some by some uh, hostile forces. Um, I don't think we ever fully resolved that, but there is a there's a sense in which maybe Batarfi hasn't been particularly effective as the leader of AQAP. So maybe again, maybe Al-Qaeda, you know, leadership in the form of al adl sees that as a really important place for his son to be active.
0: Yeah, I I think that's a really interesting point. And you you had noted the propaganda and he's involved with that. I've noticed that AQAP has I forget the name of the publication, but it's been morbin for several years. That's renewed. We're starting to see a little bit more propaganda, some more significant propaganda coming out from al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. So perhaps this is some evidence. Um, keep in mind, um, Al one of al-Qaeda's generous managers, um, Nasser al-Wahashi, was Osama bin Laden's aide-de-camp, and he also was the head of AQAP. And it was probably one of the most effective um, branches up until about… Once that Houthi war broke out, AQAP—you um, know that multifaceted Game of Thrones-like situation that exists out there—I think that's been a challenge for AQAP. But you know they're definitely in the in the down cycle on this one. But you know certainly not out. I, the UN re- describes AQAP as as the—I'm sorry—the monitoring team report describes AQAP as this: a quote, "the most combat-ready terrorist group," end quote. I, I'm curious what you think about this. I probably disagree. I think Shabab, Al Shabab, and in, in in Somalia, particularly the Taliban, or even the in Afghanistan or the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan might be far more combat ready forces, um, or the Islamic State in certain areas, right? Like, and you know, we look, we I, we could go through, but I just thought that was an interesting comment. I'm, I'm wondering where that came from. You have any thoughts on that? Yeah,
1: I mean, I, I, you know, I I agree with you. It's certainly not more combat ready than Al-Shabaab. I mean, Al-Shabaab, to my mind, is the absolute sort of prime example of a, you know, very dynamic, very well resourced, very aggressive uh, terrorist organisation. And uh, I I think AQAP, um, it pales by comparison with Al-Shabaab. But. I think perhaps it is this point about how iconic the Arabian Peninsula is that gives AQAP this particular um, aura of importance. And then, of course, that history of the threat to civil aviation, because for a long time, that was the threat, wasn't it? It was, you know, that was what we were worrying about. The thing that kept us awake at night for years and years was that somebody's going to bring down an aeroplane and that probably that the explosive device that brings down the aeroplane will have been designed... Uh, and uh, and deployed from Yemen Um, so that was you know that's and that stays with people you know I don't think that Asiri was able to pass on his expertise to anyone as brilliant uh, a, a sort of evil mastermind as he was but but still you know I think I think that his legacy is still there um the Yemeni civil war generates ungoverned space and Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is very well embedded there. And, you know, it has at various points taken territory it has been pushed out of territory, but it's always been able to embed very successfully uh, amongst the Yemeni tribes. It's managed to secure a role for itself in the civil war against the Houthis that you refer to. And so that's always generated a certain ambivalence there in Yemen where some people say, well, at least they're fighting the Houthis Rather than seeing them as primary international terrorist group, all of these things I think give them resilience. And then, I suppose the last thing I would say about them is that they were the most recent group to project a serious threat into the United States with the Pensacola attack in December 2019. So I think these are psychological factors which perhaps have meant that member states have slightly exaggerated. The um, combat readiness or the strength of AQAP. Uh, I don't, you know, I, d- I don't think it's wrong to be concerned about them. I think it's right to highlight them as a threat. And I think their history, their tradition of projecting a threat means that they will always be ready to do that when the opportunity arises. But I agree with you. If if you're looking for a pecking order within Al-Qaeda, then uh, surely, surely Al Shabaab uh, is, is well above Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula.
0: That's a that's a fascinating analysis, Edmund. I appreciate that. I, I pondering this as I'm, you know, putting the questions together. I'm like, comment really, and I think you're right. I think there is a psychological, a historical importance given to AQAP. I want to be very, you know, very again, very clear. It is a threat. It is a serious threat. I just wouldn't describe it as the. You know, most dangerous. And now let's get to another assessment from the report. This one, and look, I I love these reports. Uh, everyone, but know, knows by now, um, probably one of its biggest fanboys, and that's okay. But there's always going to be areas where we disagree, and we're going to move on to Central and South Asia. I'm going to quote directly from the this, from the report. To quote: Member states assess ISIL K. That's the Islamic State, Khorasan Province as the most serious terrorist threat in Afghanistan in the wider region, benefiting from increased operational capabilities inside Afghanistan, end quote. And I'm going to go on to try and keep this Afghanistan rant to a minimal because I think I did it the last time. Again, the most serious threat is the Taliban and its alliances with the other um, terror groups that it shelters, Al-Qaeda, the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan, just to scratch the surface, the the milieu of the terrorist groups that operate you know in Pakistan that are that are sheltering in Afghanistan going into training camps but you know on its face i just can't understand how they could say that of course provinces is, is the threat in the even in the region the the movement of the taliban in pakistan conducts attacks inside of pakistan daily they shelter in afghanistan they're being they're using a training camp in kunar province that is being run by Al Qaeda. They have close ties with the Afghan Taliban leadership. I could go on and on. So it's always these. You know, th- this is where I think what you had said. You know, how um, a lot of countries, a lot of analysts tend to get hyper focused on uh, the Islamic State. They sort of, you know, they see them as that uh, that bright and shiny object. Um, but what are your thoughts on that, Edmund?
1: Yeah, I mean. Um... I, I I don't disagree with your analysis, Bill. I, I, I but I don't quite read the report the same way that you do. I, I'm I, I'm conscious that the team finds it difficult to write this section of the report just two months after the 1988 report. You know, there's the, in every every April they have to write their annual report on the Taliban in Afghanistan, and then the June report on. ISIL and Al-Qaeda globally, the one we're discussing now, um, is written just two months later. And so, you know, that April to June timetabling, there isn't that much new to say over two months. Um, but what you say, you have to say something, um, because, you know, the idea of a global ISIL Al-Qaeda report that doesn't mention Afghanistan is, is, is absurd, um, and, and what you say, it has to be consistent with what was said two months earlier in the 1988 report. I, I think they have
0: correctly emphasized the importance of the Pakistani Taliban. They've talked a lot about oh, it in the report. Yeah, That is clear. But I mean, again, I'm yeah. directly quoting it. I mean, they're saying, the they're they, again, yeah. member states assess ISIL-K as the most serious terrorist threat yeah. in Afghanistan. Yeah. I mean, that's very definitive. Yeah. No, your
1: quote is accurate. Of course, it's accurate. Um, I think, um, you know, in a sense, TTP is at the heart of the Afghan dilemma, isn't it? Uh, It's a threat to Pakistan, but it's also one which the Afghan Taliban, although they need a good relationship with Islamabad, it's not one that they are well-placed to tackle, and they're not ideologically inclined to tackle it. You know, these people are their friends. They are their allies. Um, They're their ideological kin, um and and I think they're also afraid, I think you know, regardless of you know e- even if the Taliban were minded to say we need to put a lid on these groups that we you know we don't quite know what they're doing, we worry that they might stir people up that they might there might be blowback on our interests. I think they're afraid to to adopt a forceful policy towards t t p because if they do that, it's going to start eating away at their own support in Afghanistan, and you know the sort of the, the wilder tendency of uh, extremists in Afghanistan. They're all going to uh, say, "Oh, the Taliban are sellouts." You know, they're they're not our friends anymore, uh, and 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 maybe defect to to ISKP. So you know, in, in a sense, that that would portray ISKP as a little bit of a sort of a latent threat to the Taliban as a. Basically, as a pole to which people might be attracted, depending on what the Taliban does to try and make sense of the governing position that it finds itself in. So, so that's one, that's one point. I agree with you. I mean, I think, I think TTP in Afghanistan is bigger. I think it has a bigger fighting force than ISKP does. Plus, it has its strategic depth in Pakistan. So, I agree that that is the biggest and and the most threatening group uh, in Afghanistan.
0: Edmund, if I may, I, I would actually say the Afghan Taliban is the biggest terrorist threat in Afghanistan. It uh, controls the state. It supports the TTP, gives state sponsorship. It supports Al Qaeda and gives them state sponsorship. That's that's the whole point I'm making. Yeah, I am mean, I mean, so like, you know, in my hierarchy, it's the TTP. It's Afghan Taliban, you know, then TTP and Al Qaeda, then the Islamic State, like to put to elevate the Islamic State over the TTP is egregious, in my opinion, and then to elevate it over the actual Taliban, the Afghan Taliban, is just absurd. But that—that's th- that, the no, point I'm trying to make there.
1: And 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 I do agree with that, Bill. I mean, I will just I, 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 you know, to defend my old my old. Team, sure, it, it's fine. Uh, I, I must give you the semantic point, which is that the UN does not acknowledge that the Taliban is a terrorist group. It right, it, and they, therein they
0: just, is the mistake, and like yeah, that's yeah. the and and I get that this is done from member states; it's not designated. Um, I do get all of that, but you know, you know, on another point though, if you read these reports, there are groups that they identify as terrorist organizations that aren't designated. I forget the name of some of these groups but I'm reading, you know, read through the last one it would be like group XYZ in parentheses, not designated. So, you know, and then the Taliban is, you know, does get its own report uh, from the United States. So anyway, I, I just, I find this to be, look, Again, yeah. I'm probably being overly critical here. Maybe I'm picking at nits, but um, this is just this is the one area where I I kind of I'm at loggerheads with the with the monitoring team on. So I do understand their limitations as well.
1: So I don't I don't I don't think you're nitpicking at all. I think what you say is fundamentally true. I agree with you. Um, and, you know, one of the most frustrating things was that, you know, the Taliban were not designated as a group. Uh, it was individual Taliban who were designated, and then some entities like the Haqqani Network. And they were not designated as terrorists. They were designated as a threat to peace and stability in Afghanistan. And they still are designated as that. Now, that's a semantic distinction, but it does mean that the UN will never describe the Taliban as a terrorist group. But the, the there is a crucial point that you're making here, um, and which I want to develop upon. And this is this is where we get to, I think, the thing that really troubles you in policy terms and troubles me as well, is that the if you allow this argument that ISKP is the big threat and you don't mention the, the Afghan Taliban, never mind the Pakistani Taliban, then you immediately lead into this, uh, what I consider to be... Um, siren song leading you onto the rocks of trying to embark on counter-terrorist cooperation with the Taliban against ISKP. And that I oppose wholeheartedly. Um, To me, that is the tail wagging the dog, uh, with ISKP being the tail and the Taliban being the dog. And uh, we cannot do counter-terrorism work with the Taliban the Taliban, who themselves are deeply wedded to terrorism and terrorist methods and who never tell the truth about terrorists in Afghanistan. How could you work with people who would lie to you at every turn about the groups that you were trying to work against? Um, and never mind the, the moral and ethical pollution that you would suffer if you encouraged the Taliban to get on with what would no doubt be completely um uh you know ruthless um unlawful intimidation of uh Salafi populations um you know rounding people up, torturing people uh designating political opponents as terrorists so you know, i so I don't think you're nitpicking at all i think I think you, what you're going to here is an incredibly important point, but it's beyond the scope of the report.
0: No, Edmund. That that is exactly you. You got to the root of my uh, displeasure over this because it does have consequences. How do we allocate resources to fight terrorism in Afghanistan and the region? If the answer to that is to cooperate with the Taliban, then we've already lost. Um, so, well said, Edmund. I, I appreciate your feedback on that. Let's. Uh, we're going to quickly. We're going to turn to Africa and talk about the. We're gonna be real brief here. Again, this report—it's amazing how much we're leaving on the cutting floor. Um, we'll talk about uh, a little bit about uh, Islamic State and Al Qaeda um, op- operations and capacity in in Africa. Um, particularly, the report notes that the Sahel, the in Congo and Somalia—these are the definitely the hottest theaters of jihad right now in the terms of active conflicts like that doesn't mean that in Afghanistan or in Yemen there aren't conflicts happening and they're not important but we're talking about like open warfare fighting here there's Africa has no shortage of instability and weak governance and this fuels the fire the jihad and so you know here here's a, pr- a developing problem the last 2 years we've had uh, coups in Mali Sudan just this week in, in Niger and then there's been, I took a look at the list. There's multiple coup attempts in numerous other countries. Um, it's fascinating. If you, you take a look at that list, it, it's it's head shaking. You wonder why there's instability in Africa. It's because governments are often fighting for their own, internally fighting for their own survival. Um, typically in a coup, um, the victor of, of that attempt, be it the government in power or, the winner of the coup, you know, they the the outside uh plotters, uh, they're gonna consolidate their power in the center and ignore the peripheries. And in Africa, the peripheries tend to be in bad shape to begin with. Um so, you know, the we, I think as we've seen, the coup in Mali, that's had serious implications. The the new government um is anti-France, anti-West. Um they evicted the French counterterrorism force and 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 mali now al-qaeda and the islamic state are flourishing tell I and mean, then just briefly give us a quick assessment of what the situation is in mali and how al-qaeda and the islamic state are benefiting
1: yeah i mean it's it's grim bill and and this is it's this been grim for a, a while but you're right it's it's got it's taken a grim turn uh in particularly in the last uh, uh year or more um with political instability, coups, um, uh falling out with france falling out with the united nations um and and you mentioned niger you know which neighbors mali so you know that that's that's been a tra- that's been attacked by extremists operating in the tri-border region of mali niger and um and burkina faso um and it's attacked in the east uh by by is west africa province uh, from the lake chad uh basin i mean and and, and of course you know it's, this is where we ought to put up a map, really, because I mean, even looking at the map of Mali is just it's just uh, boggling when you look at the, the, the sheer geographical size of Mali. And, you know, you talked about the peripheries and the capitals. I mean, you know, um, increasingly what happens in Bamako just has no resonance at all in, uh, in those outlying areas, those vast outlying areas. And that's been part of the problem, this, you know, that contracted out security. You know, local strongmen, militias, militias that take then take on an Islamist tinge, or so. You know, it's it, it, it's it, it's it's been highly problematic for a long time. Um, the um, Mali has the misfortune to host not just ISGS, IS in the Greater Sahara, but also one of the most ambitious and effective franchises of Al Qaeda, which is the Janin coalition, Jamat Nasrat al-Islam al-Muslimi group for the, for the promotion of uh, of Islam and Muslims. Um, the report makes one really interesting point about ISGS getting the better of Jainin just in their own inter rivalry in the tribal area. And that's interesting to me because it used to be that Jainin was getting the better of that um, that scrap, but they seem to be struggling at the moment with that and um Jane faces its own challenges navigating the complex social and political mosaic of mali as well and you know and that's that tends to be the case any group that involves itself in sort of basically seeking to destabilize and ultimately uh, supplant authorities you know then they they're taking on something that is in itself complicated and very difficult for them as well it's a lot easier to be a sort of a, a, a pack of raiders than it is to 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 attempt any kind of more constructive role in a country. Um, But JNIM is progressively destabilizing Mali and Burkina Faso, and it's starting to threaten the stability of littoral states such as Togo, Benin, Côte d'Ivoire. Now, once you add tension between Russia and the West into this mix, and in some cases, a local preference to do business with Wagner rather than countries like France. Then the scene is set, I think, for instability, growing instability and growing conflict.
0: Yeah, I, you know, Caleb uh, and Caleb Weiss, who, you know, my co-host couldn't make it today and also partner editor at the Long War Journal. He had, we, he, we highlighted the, the situation of Mali in a recent podcast, and he had noted that uh, basically... <laughs> That the Islamic State took control of a province, and that's it's really significant. The the issues that are Mali, you know. Again, we could go back, and we'll we'll talk. We'll briefly talk about Somali Somali here. You know, to me, flip a coin, which country, or which, which what significant portions of a country you're going to fall first. Is it Somalia? Is it Mali? You know, this week it might be, I'm, I'm looking at it and going eh, probably Mali next week it's Somalia. That's how bad things are in, in this region. But Edmund, in this report, Sudan is also singled out. Um, how are the Islamic state and Al-Qaeda taking advantage of the recent instability there? What are the implications to the region?
1: Yeah, I mean, this follows naturally, doesn't it, from our discussion of Mali? Um Indeed, I think the whole Sahelian fault line across Africa from from west to east is becoming ungoverned space, ripe for exploitation by terrorist groups. Mali, Burkina Faso, Somalia, Sudan, now concerns about Niger. All of these, you know, are are challenges and they're going in the wrong direction. Um, Rivalry between Russia and the West reduces the effectiveness of the international community in addressing and containing these risks. As the report says, you know, ISIL has been long established in Sudan. You know, I can still remember, uh, you know, sort of reporting years back that, you know, ISIL had its presence in Sudan, but it was for, it was sort of a facilitation and transit base Um it was one of those classic setups where the Sudanese authorities weren't going to worry too much about ISIL as long as ISIL didn't, you know, sort of um, make things go bang in Khartoum. And that's always a dangerous place to be because, you know, that's a classic case of the cuckoo that takes over the nest potentially. Um, now, we're not there yet in Sudan. It's a, at the moment, it's a different kind of uh, civil conflict there. But, but the question of it being exploited, uh, that's another matter. Um, certainly the conflict offers new opportunities that ISIL and al-Qaeda will seek to exploit. Um, and we mustn't forget Sudan's history, of course, as a base for al-Qaeda in the 1990s. So, you know, something of a danger there of back to the future. It's not as if Sudan ever fully came to terms with that dreadful period in its history when it was dominated by Turabi and Bashir.
0: Yeah, that people forget. That's that was a safe even for bin Laden. He invested a lot in infrastructure in in the Sudan, you know, and, and real quick point on, on Niger. And then we'll we'll talk about Somalia and then close out for the day. You know, Niger, that's really worrisome. It's not mentioned in this report, but it, Niger has been a stalwart partner um, for the U.S., for France, for counterterrorism efforts in the region. U.S. has a drone base there. I don't, you know, I haven't been able to dive deep into what this, what the um, the new government is going to look like, what their position is on this. But you know, if if Niger is taken out of the game, this could be a very significant problem for the West. But um, let's let's go ahead and move on to Somalia, Edmund. Um, so the 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 monitoring team notes that the anti al Qaeda coalition, of course, the that would be the Somali government, the U.S., uh, the African Union mission uh, known as ATMOS that's uh, operating there in Ethiopia, that they've had, I'm going to put this in quotes because these are definitely not my words, quote, significant success in counterterrorism operations, end quote. Um, Mm -hmm. However, this has been, again, quote, mirrored with increased attacks, end quote, from Shabab. I, you know, any of the strikes, you know, they mentioned strikes in there, but any of the strikes that I've seen, particularly over the last several months that are announced by AFRICOM or what they describe as self-defense strikes, these are strikes that are launched when Somali forces are engaged with Shabab and things aren't going well. Or when Shabab is attempting to not attempting because they've done this successfully overrunning Somali or Ethiopian or Ugandan military bases, if they've done. Um, I you know. I myself don't see this as a success um but uh, what do you think do you do you think that the the Somali government and its allies have had su- significant counterterrorism su- successes in Somalia
1: I mean I think they've had you know there've been a few tactical successes but the question is is Somalia moving towards greater stability or greater instability uh you know Al-Shabaab and the Al-Qaeda, the Al-Qaeda office of um, of ISIL, they're both present in Somalia. And al-Shabaab has been inspired by the Taliban's success in Afghanistan. Um, Somalia has a long history, decades of extreme instability. Um, You know, one of the things that worries me about it is that, you know, is it even possible to imagine a world in which Somalia is a functioning unitary state? you know, with a, you know, with a sort of a responsible and effective government in Mogadishu. Um, I, I, you know, I hope Somalia can be stabilized, but I'm far from convinced that that is happening.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, you know, look, you, you, you nailed it. You, you know, we described uh, Somalia or Shabab as the Taliban of Africa. And I they think they're, you know, they control territory. They have an effective military. They've a resilient organization, resilient leadership. Um, strong finances. Very strong. What it, it's estimated, what, $100 million a year they're raising? That's just stunning. That is a lot of money for a terrorist organization in Somalia, no less. Am I wrong about that figure? No, I think you're
1: right. I think it's in yeah. the
0: report. I mean, I have to ask that. I know it was in the report, but you know, it's kind of one of those pinch me moments, right? I think $100 million, and you can guarantee that some of that is probably flowing outward. Well, look, I, I, again, I know we left a lot off the table. I, I highly recommend everyone give that report a read. Edmund, do you have any last thoughts before we part?
1: I think, yeah, just two, really. Um, you know, there's an interesting hint in the report that the Alpha Khan office of ISIL in northeastern Nigeria, the Lake Chad Basin area, may be growing in importance for ISIL globally, and especially in financial importance. Now, the team has struggled to cover Nigeria and IS West Africa province and the Al-Furqan office in detail. But it sits at a fascinating crossroads, doesn't it, in the heart of that ungoverned space that I mentioned earlier. And, you know, it's, it's, it's right next door to Niger. You know, Niger is immediately to the north of Nigeria. Um, I mentioned attacks from Iswat into Nigeria in sorry, into Niger uh, in the east of the country, and I mentioned the uh, the presence of ISGS in the west of the country in the tri-border area with uh, Burkina Faso and Mali. Um So you know, and then, and then you know, you've got just to to the north of Niger and north of Chad, you've got Libya, um, and then potentially routes, you know. So basically sort of, you know, massive smuggling, organized crime, people trafficking type routes that are going all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. And then potentially, of course, beyond and starting to affect Europe and and other um, non-conflict zones. So I think there may well be extremist fundraising in Nigeria, which has the largest economy in Africa. And chronic political and sectarian issues. Now, I don't think that I, I don't think that ISIL constitutes a threat to the stability of Nigeria. I think Nigeria is too strong for that. But it is very troubling that they are sitting there at that strategic junction in Northeastern Nigeria by the borders with Cameroon and Chad and Niger. And they're highly successful. They often get the better of Nigerian security forces that engage them. They are able to gather war spoils, steal military equipment, military vehicles, arms, ammunition. And that troubles me enormously because if the hint that the team drops about the Alpha Khan office is true, then, you know, it may well be that that is a key sort of epicentre for ISIL globally. And I think we should look out for more on that, I think. Um, in future monitoring team uh, reporting, uh, especially as the impact of the coup in, in, in Niger makes itself felt, as you said, you know what a worry that would be if that were to uh, effectively to to to, to neutralise Niger as a counterterrorism partner. I hope that's not going to happen, but supposing that it does, um, so I think this sort of you know this sort of heart of Africa issue, this this almost like a vacuum of of governed um, spaces, ungoverned spaces, basically, um, and what that projects outward in terms of threat. Um, and that can be criminality. It can be human trafficking, human misery, um, can be drugs, um, but uh, it can also be um, terrorism. And, uh, and, and so I, I, I'm, I'm interested to see how this conversation develops about The importance of IS West Africa Province and the Alpha Khan office, and then the second point I just wanted to make really is I I just noted the thing. You know, again, this is from being having been in the team. I pick up these things which are perhaps the least interesting to the general reading public, Um, but the team's concern at underuse of the twelve sixty seven sanction regime, Um, and it is true. This is a really important counterterrorism tool. There's so much more that could be done with it. It's a wonderful source of international agreement. You actually have Russia and America sitting down together in the security council and saying, yes, we agree on this. This is a really important sanctions regime. Yes, we need to use it energetically against ISIL and al-Qaeda. So both as a practical tool of counterterrorism and as a source of um, international joint action, which we're going to need no matter what happens in the international disputes that are, currently consuming us, you know, we're going to need the capability to act uh, internationally and for the Security Council to act. Um, so I just want to amplify the monitoring team's call for member states to make more use of the 1267 and indeed the 1988 sanctions regimes.
0: Yeah, and it's, as, as tensions continue to rise and disagreements between the United States and Russia and China, United States and China. Difficult to see that improving, um, but we can only hope. Edmund, thank you again. It's always a pleasure to have you on. This was a just a great tour de force on the the state of the jihad and, and the, the monitoring team's view of it. I, I always thank you from the bottom of my heart of joining me and spending your valuable time with us. Most welcome, Bill. Always a pleasure.
1: And I look forward to the next time.
0: Yes, hopefully soon, but we, at, at the very least when the next report rolls out. Thanks again, Edmund. Thanks again, everyone, for joining us for today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you could find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Subscribe and leave us a review, preferably a positive one. Thanks again, and we'll see you all again soon.